Welcome to the one within all to a very special holiday episode of the Universe Podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to be having this conversation today. We are going to dive deep into the cuneiform code of scriptural miracle stories through the work of our resident scholar for the night, John McHugh. Uh, oops, <laughs> just raised my desk accidentally. John is a, a Middle Eastern archaeoastrologer. I would not an astrologer, archaeo astronomy <laughs> expert. He gets into the Native American uh, awesome lore that seems to coincide so much with what we see all everywhere else around the world. But specifically, he's written this incredible book called The Celestial Code of Scripture, rediscovering the astral cipher underlying the miracle stories of the Bible and Quran. You've probably heard me bring up this man's work in the past, the recent past. I've been especially fascinated because, as you know, we do our best to syncretize all these various mythological systems and the linguistic remnants that we find into what may have been a more widespread, possibly worldwide uh, system at one point in our history that has been lost to the eons and epochs of time. So tonight we're going to be looking taking a deep dive specifically at the nativity story and the star of Bethlehem as it appears in the cipher in the sky. So John has prepared some slides for us. We're going to have a really great time. It's quite amazing to be able to reconcile the things that would really keep you up at night. If you were a devout young Catholic, like why are there are two, why are there two accounts of Jesus's birth in the Bible that seem contradictory, you know, and many other things, but it turns out that, this was all very, very well articulated scribery, looking at the language and the heavenly writing through what we call now cuneiform, which is a, a system of writing from the Akkadian people, Sumerian people, ancient Babylon. It goes way back. So I'm really excited to be talking to John. Thank you for being here, my friend. This is going to be an extremely cuneiform informative episode, <laughs> and I'm ready to get started. How you doing, dude? Welcome to the show. Thank you, Chance. Thank you so much for having me on Interverse. And I, Kinev, I, I don't even know the word you just said, but I got to use that again. That was great. Cuneiformative. Cuneiformative. <laughs> there you go. I, I, so um, anyway, well, thank you for having me on. And uh, I, um, be, as you mentioned about Catholicism, just so your your viewers know, I, I. Catholicism today is it's my language to the sacred, but I was raised devoutly Roman Catholic, and um, to you know so so the Christmas story has always been you know when I was a kid it was it was a his, it was literally history. Then in seventh grade I had a nun named um, well let me put it in perspective I wasn't taught by a lay person until I got to college so kindergarten through twelfth grade I was taught by a nun or a priest uh, so. Uh, when I got to seventh grade, sister, um, her name was Sister Regina Consolata. She had us read the nativity story silently back to back. And when you do that, you do a, a literature comparison without realizing it. She was trying to you know, expose us to every single word of God. But when she had us do that, we came up from the books with our eyes open because we all realized the same thing. Matthew's version of the birth of Jesus and Luke's version of the birth of Jesus are entirely different. They're absolutely irreconcilable. And so at that moment, I really have been on this passionate uh, pursuit of explaining and reconciling biblical 
and Quranic miracles with science. And that's where this all stemmed from. And um, you end up touching on a, a lot of paganism and a lot of spirituality while you do it. So uh, having said that, maybe uh, um, we could maybe step into the slides or whatever you want to do. It's your show. Absolutely, man. Yeah, we're we'll get into that in just a moment. But let's talk about this concept that you are espousing in the book here that the uh, Lumashi, as it were, I've described this before, but, you know, I'll take a swing at it real quick. The forms that the constellations make not only can resemble cuneiform, what they're called logograms, which are sort of a a sort of abbreviation, but then the wordplay polysemia, as it's called, or uh, that words that mean more than one thing homonyms uh there's some even uh lexical equivalencies <laughs> you know there's yeah, a lot in the mix yeah. here and so it really fits what i have discovered also about what the priesthood and astronomers of the ancient world were all about which is that the punning in the the reading between the lines was where you actually found the logos or the word of God that through humans, like the divine would speak through us and give us hidden messages that only the initiated would be able to discover. And then that's what they're deriving as history and mythology. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned that. So uh, at least from, from my research, uh, the idea of Lamashi writing, constellation writing, it's actually only mentioned one time by Esarhaddon. So when you find a pun um, in the ancient, in ancient, especially in Mesopotamia, but it's also through, it's pan Near Eastern and pan Greek. It's a, it's a universal concept uh, among human, human cultures, which is um, you found a secret of the divine because we, we don't have a concept of the word the way ancient peoples did. Ancient peoples saw names especially as the essence of who you are. We see it today through science as DNA. But in the ancient world, it was it was your name, your epithet, um, and any aspect of uh, another word that's embedded in your, like chance, you know, so... So the name chance, like you know, I'm messing around with it right now today, but, and, but, you know, it means you're, you know, you're willing to take chances. Uh, you're, you're open to, uh, whatever is coming at you. You can make an interpretation as that being what you have encoded in your psyche because your name's chance. And I'm extremely lucky. Like unbelievably yeah. lucky. <laughs> and that, and there I you should go. be playing the lotto, but I'm not yeah. dumb enough. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> well, anyway, so Lamashi writing, um, so Esarhaddon, he's a 7th century Assyrian king. Well, can I drop one on yeah. you? Your name, yeah. McHugh. You yeah. know, Hugh is also a way of saying the logo or the monogram of Bacchus, which was mm. Upsilon Eta Sigma, which could transliterate to H-U-E or oh, okay. H-U-E-S, Hughes. And that also contains a, a way of transliterating the yad Hey vav as well. So. Okay. That name yeah. is a very like. <laughs> yeah. There's there's some deep yeah. celestial uh, yeah. savior deity encoded into that. Yeah, that's that's amazing that you know that. I I I don't do a a lot of Egyptian. Mostly what I do is ancient Semitic languages and then uh, Sumerian, um, and then that's my one branch of research that I do. And then 
when I go out in the field, I live in the South, I live in Salt Lake. So uh, when I go out in the field, I pretty much am dealing with um, Native American rock art. Um, and so there's, I, I don't know where you're, got, you're located at chance, but um, it's central time. So um, but out in the American Southwest, there are just hundreds of thousands of just sacred uh Native American panels. It's basically rock writing. And I do a, a, most of my work as an archaeologist is documenting that and uh, stewarding that and uh, just researching that. A lot of it is calendrical. Um, it aligns with solstices and equinoxes. Um, so it shows uh, sacred moments throughout the calendar um, uh, of the ancestral Pueblo and people who now live pretty much in the Pueblos uh, in, in New Mexico and Arizona. Okay, so before I cut you off, you were bringing up uh, the one reference to Lamashi from the King Irshadon or Esarhaddon. Yeah, Esarhaddon, yeah. So so what happens is uh, it's really clear that punning is a form of revelation in the ancient world, especially in Mesopotamia. And then King Esarhaddon has this big giant monolisk, and he says, yeah, and I... And I wrote my name in Lamashi writing, which is constellation writing. And you could just see that whenever you find a pun in the ancient world, the, the next line is a, is a chastisement. It says, keep it secret. This is the word of the deities that only the initiated can, can know this. You can't share it with the general public. It's top secret. And Esther <laughs> Haddon, you know, so he says... You know, I wrote my name in a, in a Lamashi writing, and the, the equivalent today would have been um, Trump on Twitter. Like you could see the, the the you could see the astrologers would have been, oh no, he just gave away our biggest trade secret, and he just wrote it on a stone obelisk. And so their the entourages of of uh, astrologers was. I'm sure they were pretty upset about it. But so that's um, and then when you start looking at uh, from writing, you see these just pun after pun being the basis of exegesis or what we would today call revelation. Um, you, it, they really tip their hand. Uh, Enuma Elish is the Babylonian genesis. It's the Babylonian creation myth. And in Tablet 7, it's 163 lines long. So in Tablet 7, they named the 50 epithets for the planet god Marduk. So they write them in Sumerian logograms, these very esoteric titles. And I'm going to show you one a little later in uh, the presentation. But uh, And then they just find wordplay in that. And every single line of the 163 lines is based on what we would today call homophones, homonyms, and synonyms in the cuneiform writing. And that becomes Tablet 7 of a numerish. That's what they're doing. That's where you really see um, the the technique that they're using to expose um, inviolable, inviolable truth, un- unscrutable truth. Yeah, in their eyes. And that's why you get these yeah. taken as history, why the gospel writers would be able to do this Lumashi uh, decoding and come up with what they thought was for sure the absolute truth, the gospel (laughs) of the uh, nativity story. And, you know, before we get into the presentation, I just want to say like the more that you are able to start to pick up some keys to these codes Mm -hmm. as they exist in many different systems and, and places and times in the world, 
you will also begin to see the interconnectivity between seemingly different cultures and times. Like I was <laughs> doing some, you know, pun searching out some puns and doing my best to like imitate your style of research on the idea of Sagittarius. And mm. I have, a, I have a whole bunch of pretty chaotic notes on that because it unveiled quite a lot. But one thing that I found that was fascinating is that we know Sagittarius is said to be ruled by Jupiter. And Jupiter in Sanskrit is called Guru. Hmm. And Guru, it, like G-U-R-U, in the, uh, uh, I believe this is the Sumerian language, is to circumcise, basically, to trim away or clip a part of the body. And I yeah. thought, well, that's fascinating. And, the other, and then I found, I realized the other name for Guru slash Jupiter in the Sanskrit and Hindu religion is Brihas Pati. And I was like, Brihas. We know Pati is father, Potter, okay. as it is in Latin and other languages, but Brihas, it sounds just like the Jewish word bris, which yeah. is the ceremony to circumcise oh, okay. a baby boy. So we have guru and Brihas, bris, you know, kind of connecting this idea of circumcision with Jupiter uh, between the Hindus and the Sumerians. So there's yeah. like, you know, there's a million threads and clues and things you can find. I yeah. just wanted to throw that example out there. It's like you start pulling in threads, things are going to connect. Yeah, and it's interesting. There's so many of them have these Sumerian origins. The Sumerians invent writing a little before 3000 BC, um, and they, they are the master civilization. They they even invent writing before the Egyptians. And so uh, the, the Sumerian words show up unexpectedly and inexplicably in the Hebrew Bible, they show up in, you know, you know, the Hebrew word for garden is, you know, gone. Well, that's comes right out of the Sumerian and nobody can explain how it came right out of the Sumerian and shows up again in Hebrew, you know? So, um, but we can talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Let, let, I'll let you get into the, the material so that we have uh, plenty of time to get through that. But I could definitely just talk to you about these things. Yeah. Before you know, I, again, yeah. I mean, and maybe in another episode, we could certainly do it. They're, they're all over the place. Now you got to remember, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on one thing. I'm trying to show that the, the reason miracles were possible, literally, I mean, I mean, walking on water miracles, being born to a virgin miracles. The reason that they're possible is because the ancients viewed picture stories in the stars as uh, still frames or tableaus of literal history, historic events. And then, uh, you know, secondary meanings, polysemy in the, in the cuneiform spellings of the constellations that make up a picture were then filled in all the details and all the action in the picture. So that's what they're, they're doing. That's, that's what the book basically talks about. So you have all these miracles in the Bible. We know scientifically today that's not possible. What, when you look in the stars, especially, uh, you look in the Sumerian and Babylonian constellations and you find direct correlates to the Old Testament, New Testament miracles and even miracles in the Quran and, and many of the pagan miracles like the birth of Pegasus, um, the golden fleece myth, stuff like that. Oh man, the Pegasus squares are the gift they keeps on giving. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. nonstop. Everything's encoded with so many different myths and so many different um, levels of meaning that you just, 
I, I come out of, you know, I, I have to do a lot of work in an ancient studies room because that's where all the lexicons are. And you come out of there and you're just, you're just kind of bewildered and you can't sleep. Cause when I'm, when I'm reading your book and I get to a certain point, I am imagining you with your hair literally blown back yeah. somehow, even though you're yeah. indoors, like what yeah. happened? Yeah. My, my wife asked me like, where's the sugar? You know, I'm like, huh? You know, I'm like, okay, okay, what did she just say? What, what sugar? Isn't that a Sumerian logogram? You know, so, you know, so, yeah. well, so a good research tool for people might be a planisphere. You can get a pretty yeah, cheap great. one. And then, as you like rotate it, you can see what constellations yeah. are visible together at the same time. And that gives yeah. you an idea of what John's talking about. A yeah. stellar tableau, multiple constellations in view at one moment. And that would give, you know, the components yeah. for all the different stories, seven ways from Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I got to tell you, Chance, I, I really, um, I, I'm impressed with your, you're really a scholar, right? You you really look, you really read up on this, and you really are uh, making connections. I, I have to be very circumscribed in a lot of the work I do. I'm trying to get published, so I got to tamp things down. And so, a lot of times, I have to I I have to write things for astronomers, for archaeologists. So I don't say everything I'm thinking, but. Um, Maybe I'll let some more out of the bag tonight. What the heck? You seem more open to it. Oh, yeah. This is the place for that, for sure. All right. Well, let's uh, pulled up your slides here. I'm super excited to get into it. The pagan star of Bethlehem. What a story. The star that moves and they follow it. Yeah. So there's your pretty, you know, I like that picture because it does show what, what the entourage, you know, they're, 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 uh, they're in the entourage of some kind of Eastern king. So an entourage of scholars would have had a, of astronomers. Remember, let me just clarify. The word astronomy and astrology, astronomy and astrology, they're, they're interchangeable in the ancient world until the 6th century AD. So let's just start right there. So when I say astronomy, I mean astrology. When I say astrology, I mean astronomy. The astrologers were the timekeepers of the ancient world. They were the historians of the ancient world. And they also had to predict the future. And one of the things that's very different about, you know, when you think of reading a horoscope, right, you you think of the, um, the zodiac and things like that. In ancient Mesopotamia, there really wasn't a personal horoscope. The... It's better to define it as celestial divination to prognosticate the future for the kingdom. It, it was a it it's was still, a judicial astrology would be it, the term. Yeah, and it goes still, both ways, forwards yeah. and backwards. The past and the yeah. future are dictated by this judicial astrology. One reason why you might call it that is because the religion was the law. They weren't separate entities. Exactly. The state and church were there weren't two things. It yep. was just the priesthood and the kingship were kind of like hand in glove. Yeah. Yeah, and the the success of them mattered for the success of all the people. So you had to get the timing right of when to plant and do all the basic, uh, you know, uh, functional stuff. But at the same time, you had to predict, you know, was there going to be an assassination attempt on the king or queen? Was there... Was there going to be a, a famine in the land or was there going to be a great wheat harvest that we should store and uh, as a surplus for later or, or for sale to gain you know, more capital? You know, stuff like that. So so anyway, uh, another title for it might be Rediscovering the Pagan Star of Bethlehem Within the Stellar Tableau of Jesus' Nativity. 
And um, so um, the book's The Celestial Code of Scripture. I write about it in chapter 12. It's literally chapter 12 in the book's called The Stellar Tableau of Jesus' Nativity. Notice I use the, the biblical uh, s- spelling with the apostrophe. The, the correct, you know, uh, Palmer Method version is Jesus apostrophe S at the end and all that, but I'm going out of the Bible. So, so if anybody's an English major, just know I'm, I'm, I'm not misspelling that. I'm, I'm an English major. <laughs> <laughs> You're killing me. <laughs> My wife's an English major too. So she, she'd want me to change that, but uh, she's not here right now. So. <laughs> well, I'm a creative writing emphasis, English major. So I'm cool with it. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So the, the book, the, if you had to put the book in a few sentences, it's, it, it reveals the supreme esoteric doctrine of the ancient world, that the constellations depicted tableaus or pictures of all the monumental incidents that had taken place on Earth, um, polysemy, you know, notable meanings in a word or a phrase. Um, for the cuneiform signs that were used to spell out the constellation titles in each of these astral pictures, divulged the action and the details that were taking place and then religious astrologers like the Magi that followed the star of Bethlehem to the birth site of baby Jesus arranged these stellar picture stories and their accompanying missives into narratives, which were then recorded as miracles, the miracle stories that are described in pagan, biblical, and Quranic scriptures. So that's what the book is about. So um, the reason the star of Bethlehem is so fascinating is, first of all, it's 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 the biggest astronomical mystery of all time. It is the number one astronaut. As someone who's a, you know got an expertise in archaeoastronomy, this is the number one mystery, right? And it's also one of the the most popular religious stories of all time. It's the birth of uh, of Jesus, of the Christ for Christians. Christians believe this is the Son of God, the birth of the Savior, right? And Matthew tells us that astrology. He says in Greek, he says magoi. Um, it's the plural of magus, which is really magician is a nice way to translate it. But it's astrologer priests from the East. I'm putting them in quotes because that's exactly what it says. They arrive in Jerusalem. They meet with King Herod and his, and, and his entourage. And they say, where is the one born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the East and have come to worship him. And you're like, okay. All right, well. You break down some of that information. So it's definitely a star. It's not a planet. It's not a comet. It's not a hairy star, which is the term for for, um, comet. It it appears in the east. You you could make the argument that that Greek is clunky, is clunky. You could make the argument that the original said at its rising. Um, But uh, but but I don't have any extant. There are no extant texts that say that. So, and it signals the birth of a king and the anointed one, right? So, so then in uh, verses 9 through 11 of Matthew's uh, nativity story, the star does something supernatural. It, it, it leads, um, we're going to find out that these astrologers are Babylonian, but it, lead, it goes ahead of the astrologers for about 1,450, about 900 miles goes to Jerusalem, and then it suddenly hangs a left and goes another five and a half miles to Bethlehem and parks itself over the house of the Christ child, right? And there the astrologers, they, they find the baby Jesus in his house um, where they see, her, see him with Mary, and they, they bring, they give him, you know, the, their, their regal gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So put that in perspective. By the way, these are, 
Magus is a Persian term. Again, I go off of just rote memory right here, but it's like a sixth century term. It's referring to Zoroastrian priests, Persian priests of the occult. They were dream interpreters. They had other occult skills. But by the time the New Testament is being written, the, the, the term gets muddled with Babylonian astrologers specifically. So when you're talking about the the astrologers that show up at the birth of Jesus, it's specifically Babylonian astrologers. So they leave probably somewhere, probably Babylon, maybe somewhere else in Babylonia. They go about 900 miles to Jerusalem. Okay, a star can do that. It can lead you across the desert to Jerusalem. But it can't do that. There's no star that can just hang a left and go directly south to Bethlehem and then drop down and park itself right over the house of of baby Jesus. It's just not possible, right? So the the story itself is hard to believe. You know, what kind of star can do what I just described, right? And even more damning is in an era when the calendar was reckoned by court-authorized astronomers who were systematically observing the rising and setting of stars to keep the calendar, right? Um, And these star atlases, right? So how could such an unprecedented celestial event go undocumented, unnoticed by anybody in the Near East, right? Uh, Let me add in too, like how could the parting of the Red Seas and the the pyramids of Giza and things like that be unnoticed by like Herodotus? Yeah. You know, do you see this as a recurring theme of these Mm -hmm. miracles having no, no basis in like, you know, the archaeological record. And also it it's got caused a lot of people to spin their wheels and maybe waste a lot of energy trying to like figure out yeah. what it was that was seen based on believing this to be a, a literal historical event. Yeah. And this is where my, my kind of peculiar background comes into play. So, um, you, the, the worst thing you could do as an archaeologist is play paleo psychologist, right? And that's all I do. I mean, that's the first thing I do is I want to know how Matthew came to write those words, that the star turned south and stopped over Jesus's house. So that's what I'm asking myself. And so one of the greatest Christian scholars of all times is William F. Albright. He's he he what he wrote in 1964 still stands today. The historicity of the narrative is not quite so easily, easily elucidated. Commentators have ranged from dismissing the episode as an astrological myth to attempting on the other to one hand, on the other hand, to pinpoint the exact comet or planetary conjunction, which first appeared in the assumed year of the birth of Jesus. Notice they say planetary conjunction or comet because there's no star that can do what Matthew said. Um, And we'll see that it's a way simpler explanation. So, here's where things get really convoluted and confusing. And especially when I was like 12, you know, when I had that incident in seventh grade, you know, Luke's version of the birth narrative of Jesus entirely contradicts Matthew's version. So in Luke never mentions a star, never mentions astrologers tells, tells us that an emperor's edict has called Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem for a census. So Joseph can, um, can register in his homeland. Um, there's a giant uh, influx of uh, migrants coming in for the census. And the, uh, the lodgings, the best translation, it's not an inn, it's a different word in Greek. But the lodging has is probably only one lodging in Bethlehem. It's a little 
It's only got like 300 people. Um, so uh, this lodging is filled. And so, you know, today we have like a motel with a parking lot. Well, back then they would have a caravanserai, which is basically a three-walled building. And then the one end had a gate and a fence. And you would bring your pack animals into the inner courtyard and there'd be mangers everywhere to feed the pack animals. And then the paying guests would stay in the rooms that made that kind of U-shape around the courtyard. And since the rooms were filled, Mary had to give birth out in the, the pack animal courtyard. And there's a manger there and she lays the baby in the manger. She gives birth to her firstborn son. And here's the key. She wraps him in cloth. She swaddles him. Lays him in a manger. Then an angel, and remember, Matthews doesn't say any of this, right? Then an angel of the Lord shows up and tells a bunch of shepherds that the definitive sign is indeed going to be you're going to find an infant swaddled and lying in a manger. Remember, swaddled means wrapped in cloths. In Luke 10, a multitude of heavenly hosts shows up, joins the angel and the refrain of praise. And by the way, the, the Greek literally tells you that that is a heavenly army. It's it's not we we think of it as just a group of like a choir like a choir. It's not that. It's a heavenly army. You wouldn't want to mess with these folks. Um, then the shepherds hurry off to Bethlehem and they manage to locate the exact feeding trough where the swaddled baby Jesus lay with his parents, Mary and Joseph. Remember, in Matthew's version, Jesus is born in a house and only Mary's present. And in this version, Jesus is born and laid in a manger, and Mary and Joseph are. You know, a present, and this is probably where Jesus was born in a caravanserai. It's uh, in Greek, it's kailuma. Um, it, it, there, there it is. There's the inner courtyard. The building itself is where the paying guests would stay. All those rooms were filled, so Mary had to go out in that inner courtyard and give birth out there. So, and just just jump in. I'm just going through this. So, you know, there, there's astonishing discrepancies, right? It's really clear that Matthew and Luke were not aware of each other's writings. They didn't know each other, and they did not know that uh, one wrote a version of the the birth story. Uh, another interesting piece to all this is that there was no one present at Jesus's uh, in Jesus's adult ministry. Remember that starts when he's about thirty. They were they had attended his birth. None of them had attended his birth. Not the apostles. Uh, not any of the his friends that show up, you know, not Joseph of Arimathea or any of those folks, right? Um, only Mary and Joseph. And these jolting discrepancies indicate that that the, the birth stories are not based on the eyewitness testimony of Mary and Joseph. They couldn't be that different. Um, so one of the greatest New Testament scholars on earth is he's actually he's a Catholic priest. He wrote a book called birth of the Messiah in like 1978. Um, And, you know, he says, all of this means, in fact, that we have no real knowledge that any or all of the infancy material came from a tradition for which there was a corroborating witness. That brings up your basic question. How in God's name did Matthew and Luke come to confidently report an account of Jesus's birth if they didn't have any eyewitness testimony? They don't have anything. They have no word of mouth eyewitness testimony to to rely upon. They're writing five decades after Jesus died. They have no way to figure out any of this, right? And you're aware of the correlation of the four evangelists to the royal stars, right? Help me out there. 
Okay, so you often see the four evangelists with their respective animals, right? The uh, the ox, the yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so guitars. Yeah, so Matthew correlates to Fomalhaut in Pisces, okay, and Luke correlates to oh gosh, put me on the spot. I think Luke correlates to Taurus, and Mark correlates to the uh, Royal Star Regulus, which is an important component of this story yeah. that we're getting into here. Yeah. So the four evangelists are often shown with the, in the four corners and in tarot cards like the world, uh, yeah. but in the form of the animals. But that there's a longstanding tradition, especially in Catholicism, of showing those four um, with the respective animals, the, the man, the angel, uh, the eagle, the... Uh, and the bull. <laughs> so yeah, it's in there. No, that's interesting that you point that out. I didn't even, I didn't even think of that one. I, I, I'm assuming that the four evangelists represent th- their images represent the seasons. So somebody just wrote Matthew is an ox, Luke is a man, Mark is a lion, John is Scorpio. Yeah, I, I'm going to look into that. That's, <laughs> we're going to be writing an article together, brother. You didn't know. <laughs> I'll send you a link to a past yeah. show I've done on yeah. that one. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, it, it, the, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't have infancy narratives in, in the beginning. Okay, Mark and John never write an infancy narrative. They never talk about Jesus's birth. But uh, Matthew and Luke attached an infancy mar- narrative, um, and so it's connected to the need to prove that Jesus really was the Messiah. So. Um, the infancy narratives, although they, they register the earliest moments in Jesus's life, they're the latest additions to Matthew and Luke's Gospels. They're both written in the mid-80s AD. I think no one's going to have a heart attack if you say that. you got to remember, the Jews and pagans, many of them believe Jesus was illegitimate. Um, it shows up in John 8, uh, Chapter eight, verse forty-one. Uh, Jesus is arguing with the Jewish people, and he's he's saying that you, the Jews, are doing the works of your father, and he's he's cursing them. He's saying, "Yeah, the devil. Yeah, you're working for the devil because you're not you don't believe I'm the Son of God." And the Jews say, "We have not been born of fornication. We have one Father, God." The implication being, you are illegitimate. So. Uh, Kelsus, the uh, pagan, he, he, this guy hates Christianity, man. He, he goes on a diatribe every time you say the word Christianity with this guy. But so in the late second century, he writes that Jesus, uh, it was Jesus who fabricated the story that he had been born of a virgin. In fact, however, his mother was a poor countrywoman who earned a living by spinning. She'd been driven out by her carpenter husband when she was uh, convicted of adultery with a soldier named Panthera. And that shows up actually in second century Hebrew text as Yeshu ben, uh, ben Pantera, uh, Jesus, son of Pantera. Um, so, so there's a, a lot of weight to that. So, um, and, and there's a lot of weight to that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah and, and, and in addition, the, the, the uh, Judaism levels this, um, basically a polemic against any, uh, any Jew that accepts Jesus as the Christ. And, and again, in the, in the eighties AD, uh, there's a prayer called the 18 benedictions and it's prayer, synagogue prayer. And it was rephrased so that Jews who worship Jesus were branded as heretics. So you see this in John chapter nine, verse 22, uh, Jesus heals this blind young man 
and they go to his parents and they say, hey, did this Jesus do that? And his parents say, you know, uh, they, they said, you need to go ask him yourself. Uh, don't ask us. He, he's of age. He's not a minor. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Um, so there's an example of what would happen to you if you accepted Jesus as the Christ in the, in the 80s AD uh, in, in the, the environs of uh, Jerusalem. So Matthew and Luke's you know, nativities counter this, right? They provide a de- genealogy that connects Jesus, puts him in the line, the genealogy of David. It establishes Jesus' birth site as Bethlehem, so that that would fulfill the Old Testament prophecy found in Micah that I list right there that says, you know, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And, you know, what's a little different about this, and it doesn't ever show up in Judaism, God himself arranges the uh, the impregnation so that, you know, Mary is, is conceives Jesus through this Holy Spirit, which is a new gig in um in uh, Judeo-Christianity, in early Christianity. So the question, now we got to refine our question a little bit more. How did the evangelist compile an account of Jesus' birth with no eyewitness testimony at their disposal? Um, well, the clues are, they're literally embedded in the, <laughs> in the nativity narratives them, themselves. And I, 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 again, I, I'm just going to say to you, you're not going to believe how simple some of these answers are. And they've been overlooked for 2,000 years. Um, and, and you a, know to like put uh, put a a pin on that point. There's actually, as you describe it in your book, in the academic world, been a sort of unofficial ban on doing this type of correlative research, like you do. Am yeah. I not mistaken? Yeah, it's it's tough to do this and get published in America. It's much more well received in Europe. Um, so I I typically get published in European. Uh, scholarly peer-reviewed periodicals, but <laughs> I get rejected a lot in America. But, um, but it's, you know, uh, it, it's connected to what I'm about to present to you, that, that um, there's actually a picture of Matthew and, and Luke's birth stories in the pagan Mesopotamian and Greek constellations. They're pre-Christian star atlases. And so, you know, remember, you know, Matthew says it's Magi who the astrologer priest who uh, who show up at the birth site of Jesus. And again, in the first century uh, AD, the first century Magus, the singular form is Magus, uh, that literally referred to a Babylonian astrologer. Um, um, earlier, it referred, referred to Persian priests of the occult, but at the, in the first century, it's Babylonians, right? So, his use, his knowledge that Babylonian astrologers are showing up at Jesus's birth also implies an understanding of the esoteric astrological precepts on, upon which their prognostication was based, right? So I'm not going to go into that right this second, but when you turn to Babylonian star atlases, you look at the brightest star in Leo, it's Regulus, it's Alpha, Alpha Leo. Um, we know it better as Regulus, which is like little king or diminutive king. So the reason it's probably Dominion of King is the star is Sharu. It's written Sharu in Babylonian, right? And Sharu is a homonym. It it means king typically, but it's also a variant uh, pronunciation for a child, baby, infant. It's typically pronounced Sheru. Uh, it's a, it's a it's sort of the way um, some people say 
especially some people say especially um, some people say ask and then in, like in in black American uh, uh, parlance you would see x you know so it's just a it's a slightly different pronunciation of the same exact spelling. And so, you have to think that way if yeah. you're in this research. You know, I just see a, a week or two, I don't know, maybe more than that ago, I started playing around with adding an R sound after the, the vowel A to things to see what comes up because yeah. so many people put a, a hard yeah. R on their A's. And I, yeah. you know, and that was just like an immediate goldmine of connections. So, yeah, you do got to yeah. consider how different dialectical regional changes in how people pronounce things is going to come into play and a little harder to do when we're putting our mind back into the ancient world, but still certain things, certain twists on the way things are said would probably apply back then as much as it does now. Yeah. And, and so, so you literally have a child King. That's how the astrologers describe this child. They say, where's the King? Where's the child King born? born king of the Jews. So they know he's a, he's a king and a child and an infant. Luke has a different phraseology in, in his verse. He says, and this will be, the, the verb of being is, is inferred by the, by the reader, but it says, and this for you, the sign, you will find an infant wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So the, the thing that's really interesting about Luke is he uses the term semion in Greek. And semion, it literally means sign, but it has a more nuanced uh, meaning, and it, what it is is a constellation serving as a sign. Okay, and so Luke tells us that the Christ child is going to be born and is going to be lying in this manger. So the manger is a, a crucial component of the sign, right? And Simeon can mean a constellation serving as a sign. So you're like, all right, and you see that a lot in the New Testament Greek this Samion word that gets translated yeah. in the KJV as sign, totally losing the context that we're talking about. Yeah. Astrology. Wonder. They also translate it wonder. Um, but it gets really interesting because here's what we know about Luke. Well, he's a pagan physician from Antioch, Syria. Um, he writes Acts of the Apostles. In Acts of the Apostles, he quotes numerous times St. Paul. And it's really well accepted amongst uh, theologians, Christian theologians, that when he quotes St. Paul, he's not there writing down what Paul said. He's inferring what Paul said, and he's putting those speeches on Paul's lips. So when you read a speech by Paul in Acts of the Apostles, it's very likely concocted or created or inferred by Luke. It's Luke's own hand that wrote it. And in Acts 17.28, Paul quotes from a 3rd century B.C. very well-known star atlas called Phenomena. Uh, that's one of the speeches that Paul uses, and he quotes this star atlas. So when Paul quotes star 3rd century you know, Greek star atlas, it's Luke who's quoting that star atlas Phenomena. And in lines 892 to 908 of Phenomena, the manger asterism and cancer shows up as a meteorological sign over and over again. And then suddenly, um, when, when, uh, when Luke writes uh, the birth story of Jesus, the manger shows up as a sign again, you know, which is kind of, whoa, wait a minute. He's recycling pagan, uh, Hellenic pagan wisdom, astrological wisdom into his own uh, story of Jesus's birth. Um, also, phenomena is also where you see Parthenos. Uh, Parthenos, which means virgin in Greek, 
applied to Virgo frequently. Right. And, and a lot the, of the, yeah. a lot of what's said about Christ as the logos in the new Testament yeah. is like word for word phraseology and idiom yeah. uh, taken from other uh, pagan Hellenic philosophers oh, God, speaking yeah. about the logos, Oh yeah, but before Christianity. Yeah. They're, they're, it's all over the place there. And then you turn to the stars and you're like, well, wait a minute. We got a virgin, Parthenus, right? We have an infant king, the next immediately to the, to the west. And then immediately east uh, west of the infant king is M44 in Cancer. It's messy object. It's a fuzzy little star. It's a star cluster. It's called messy object 44. You can see it in the night sky on a dark night. Um, uh, it, cancer's dim, but uh, it's, M, it's fatine. It's a manger. So you have the major components of the nativity story right there in a tableau in the stars. And I said, I'll bet when I start looking at their cuneiform titles, I'm going to start finding all the other words that correspond to the details in Matthew and and Luke's story. And so another thing I want to add into this too is, so looking at this slide, you can see the major components of the story, the the virgin, the infant king, the manger. But also, I, I have noticed that there are like repeats. So what I mean by that is there is maybe more than one way that you can pull this story with these props out of the uh, asterisms and constellations. And that's the amazing thing. It, there's like redundancy in this system. Yeah. Like when you're looking at the Argo arc story yeah. and the dove, there's like more than one dove. And yeah. so this so if people out there are like, well, I've already found a different way to <laughs> find the astro theology of the nativity story, uh, you know, that that may be we're dealing with uh, long swaths of time and a big game of telephone and things have probably been kind of encoded multiple times, multiple ways. And they were kept secret too. the astrologers kept their their wisdom secret. They tried to keep it within their own enclaves, astrological enclaves, because it would have been spiritually unsafe to to let someone who's not initiated utilize that information. You've got, you've got secrets of the gods. And if you know the God's secret, you can control the God, but you can do bad stuff controlling certain gods, you know? So, um, but what gets really uh, fascinating to me is, so Virgo is, is a, a virgin in, in pre-Christian uh, Greek star atlases. Um, however, in Mesopotamia, her Western stars connect with Coma Berenices and Leo's tale to form a pregnancy goddess whose name, it's typically written Eru, which just means to be pregnant. So you literally have the words um, virgin and pregnant connected to Virgo, the virgin constellation. So, um, So again, now that puts another layer onto it. Now we have a pregnant virgin we have a child king and we have a manger. So now we have Mary. We have the the epithet for Mary there, the pregnant virgin, right? So, so uh, this is already, if this is coming up in the slides, uh, then just we'll save it. But yeah. in the constellation Leo, you also found the Udai or the Judah, right? Yeah. The Jews. Yeah. So the king, not just the king, but of the Jews is in there. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, the words "king of the Jews" can are embedded in the the way to, you know, Regulus, the infant king, is in is in is embedded in 
a larger constellation, Leo, right? And Leo's, one of the ways to read the cuneiform Sumerian logograms is, uh, you can write it, Mu, Lu, and alternate readings for the signs render Yaudo. Yaudu, which is Judah. It's Judah in, you know, Judah in uh, Babylonian. So Right. So the, like the Babylonians may not have necessarily even meant that, but then when the later priesthoods get their hand on it and they are identified or from Judah or, uh, you know, they're getting puns based on their language. So that's how the system evolves over time is new priests with new languages pick up the same tools of Lumashi, if you will. And then they're like finding new puns and the envelope kind of gets pushed forward. Yeah, exactly. And and I, I think these are quite frankly, they're, they're Babylonian trained Christian astrologers. I think uh, Matthew and Luke were, uh, they were they were magos. They were they were they were magi. They were they were astrologer priests, and they probably had other forms of occult wisdom too. But they definitely knew astrology. So we, we go on. So could Matthew, Matthew and Luke's nativity narrative be based on the tableau embedded in pre-Christian Babylonian Greek constellations? Well, I, I'm just gonna I'm not gonna go deep deep deep. I, I just want to introduce your viewers to this uh, chance, the inter- interverse viewers, but the ancients believed that pictures in the con- still frames in the constellations depicted I, I'm from the old when I was a kid, Polaroids w- were a big deal, like, you know what I mean? That's how old I am so, so th- they're like these snapshots of historic events and wordplay embedded in the constellations cuneiform spellings imparted the action and details that were taking place in, in each of these stellar still frames. And that's where we're getting the term Lamashi writing or constellation writing. So, so the, the idea of pictures in the stars is nothing new. I mean, the Greeks had a term for it, catastorismos. Uh, it means placing among the stars. Pictures in the constellations, frame, uh, they frame momentous scenes from, from history. You see that in any a friend of mine drew this picture of uh, the uh, uh, the Farnese star atlas. You can see there, you know, Perseus is in the middle of the screen carrying Medusa's head. He's just cut her head off. Pegasus has leapt forth. He's the flying horse. Uh, Ketis is poised to eat Andromeda, who's tied to a rock. And um, of course, Perseus swoops down and kills Ketis, the uh, sea, sea dragon there in the bottom of your screen. Um, and you know the 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 ram in the middle of your picture is a, a flying golden fleeced ram. He's the golden fleece. You know Jason's Jason's goal. Jason and the Argonauts goal. Um, all of these are deities. They're gods who are. Um, they are. Um, you know, they're, uh, they've got eternal life because of the, the deeds they performed, the feats they performed have allowed them to go in and have eternal life in heaven because of their miracles they performed. So you might even say that because of the antiquity of the system we're dealing with, probably stretching back far beyond our ability to have any archaeological record that the priest astronomers of the time might even be basing their assumption that the stellar tableau referenced historical events on the idea that when certain significant and monumental things happened in their time, or when a new king or empire would take hostage the astronomer priests of another region, they might actually, you know, employ a catastrophe, catastrophism yeah. <laughs> uh, to a modern event 
and put somebody or some event up in the stars as you know, a new reading of a certain constellation or create a new constellation out of certain stars. And so in the same way, they're kind of backwards projecting and thinking, well, if it's up there, then somebody saw it and knew that it happened. And that's how it got put up there. Yeah. And well, yeah, you see that in Antonis. So Antonis is one of the asterisms in uh, Aquila, the uh, Eagle constellation. And so it's a very late constellation. It's put up probably um, right probably in the first century. So uh, Antonis, I, I'm not trying to be you know, inappropriate here or anything, but um, Antonis is, uh, he's a youth, he's a young lover. And uh, he's the, the um, you got to understand in, in, in Hellenic culture, it was fashionable if uh, established men, elite men, had uh, young male lovers, you know, same-sex lovers. And although we frown on that today, it was considered fashionable uh, in the ancient world and even a coveted thing. And so Hadrian, the emperor Hadrian, had a lover named uh, Antonus who was in his entourage. Um, he sacrificed himself uh, so that uh, Hadrian was not um, assassinated. And uh, the belief because, is that, as astronomer priest said, you're about to be assassinated, right? Yeah, there, there was a prediction that, yeah, there, there's going to be something ominous is about to happen to Hadrian. So uh, so Antonus sacrificed himself. One of the stories is he jumps into the Nile and drowns himself. Uh, and he actually, according to the astrologers, the astrologers in Hadrian's entourage, um, rose up to uh, into the stars uh, as an asterism and the, the, uh, the young boy asterism that you can see today is Antonis in Aquila, the, the Eagle constellation. Oh, by the way. So, so this is the biggest celestial myth, you know, that you can ever imagine. So you got, you know, the story is as early as Hesiod in 700 BC, Hesiod's writing that, um, you know, Orion wanted to kill all the animals there was on earth. And, uh, this really angered Zeus. So Zeus creates a giant scorpion who rises up, tracks down Orion and stings him dead. This chase scene is forever commemorated in the stars. In fact, that's how they both became deities in heaven because of this uh, eternal chase scene um, that actually caused Orion's death. So whenever Orion sets on the Western horizon, Scorpius is rising in the East. And if you ask an ancient Greek, if you said, well, how, how can you know that that story is true? This person would point up to the stars and say, it's right there. You can see it. They're doing it in heaven. If they're reenacting this and if they're enacting this in heaven, then this is unequivocally an earthly event. So it gets reported as literal history. And that's where you get the difference between religious history and uh, of the ancient world and what we would call history today. In the ancient world, miracles were definitely possible. Right. And what gets really interesting is when you start applying these concepts to things that are still considered to be ancient history, like the city of Troy, the seven kings of Rome, uh, it goes on. But that's something that uh, uh, I find fascinating that a lot of ancient history could actually be this very same type of stellar mythology. Yeah. And uh, I, I get a feeling it goes way, way back, even into pre-literate times. I really think it goes way, way back. So, um, but just, so, you know, another, tell we're still framing Orion's walks on water seven 
centuries before Jesus does, right? And it's in the Astronomia. Uh, so it's in it's in a text called the Astronomy. So probably an astronomical event. Um, when you look at Orion, he's taking his first step out onto the celestial waters uh, that are that are the eight aquatic constellations demarcate a sea in the sky, an ocean in the sky. You know, you can see them right there. It's Delphinus, Aquarius, the water god, you know, goatfish, southern fish, Pisces, Kedis, uh, Eridanus, the river and the ship. Um, so, but this probably got recycled as the basis for Jesus's, uh, you know, seawalk because uh, some of the cuneiform titles for Orion include Dingir Damu, just means the 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 sun god the the s o n god and mulsuko sukal just means it, it means sukal typically means messenger but it also is the logogram for anointed one which is christ so you have the words son of god and anointed one embedded in the cuneiform titles for orion and i'm pretty sure that's how uh matthew uh mark and john came to believe that uh that Jesus in the guise of Orion walked on water, that this was a picture of Jesus walking on water. And then I do that in a couple of, if you look it up in archaeoastronomy and ancient technologies, I did a bunch of articles. It's one of the chapters in the book. Um, all the word plays that talk about the differences in those three stories. Yeah, guys. And this is really a very surface level sampler compared to yeah. the work in this book, which is even yet still a sampler. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like the yeah. the the depth that you could take it if you were John at the you know in the research room, uh, getting his hair blown back by <laughs> this crazy stuff would be like yeah. word. You would be you're finding word for yeah. word even in the phrasing of things from the scriptures being direct yeah. directly taken from the cuneiform wordplay. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, we talked about Lamashi writing. It's it's the idea that polysemy in the constellations, original cuneiform titles imparted. You know, and I use the term inf- infallible truth, inviolable truth, um, revelation, exegesis. It's it's a truth that cannot be questioned. It's unequivocally true. I, infallible because of my Roman Catholic background. There's a term that refers to the per- pope as being infallible in certain 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 circumstances. Um, so I like that term infallible. Yeah. And if you so, go, if you go, can you go back yeah. to Orion there? Oh, yeah. wow. I can control yeah. the slides. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, I also think that there could be, you know, it might be worth investigating if this is also where Moses parts the Red Sea. Since the word that we have for Moses, the Hebrew Moshe, the Mim Shen He, also is the word for anointed. Yeah, yeah. My point being that there are there are multiple stories encoded, multiple versions of the same story that seem different as they reemerge in different time periods. Yeah, and they're just my belief is they're actually based on just certain still frames and then different word plays encoded in those still frames. Like you know. Moses baskets in it's actually in that I, I don't have it shown in this picture, but it's right there. It's up. It's the squits the aku. It's the square that's uh, straddled by Pisces up there. And I don't. That would show be the it Pegasus in square. Yeah, the, yeah, the Pegasus the gift square that keeps on giving. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, it's about 
80 myths connected to that. So, yeah, so um, so that, that's the sea walk, Jesus' sea walk, Lamashi writing, polysemy. They're, they're, they're seeing puns as revelation, right? Babylonian astrologers literally refer to the starry sky as shittir shamay, which means heavenly writing or celestial writing. <laughs> the title for an astrologer or an astronomer has nothing to do with astronomy. It's tupsharu. And Tupsharu in uh, Babylonian means author. It means writer. It's because they're reading what it implies is your ability to read. They're reading the celestial sky as a text and then writing down signs that allow them to predict the future and and, uh, stories that allow them to explain the past, if you had to put it in the simplest English as possible. So, yeah, the idea, we don't have it today. We don't. We don't, if I told a pun to you, you you would think of it as a pretty cool witticism, but you wouldn't think of it as a revelation that you needed to live by. And in the ancient world, wordplay was taken with that level of solemnity. And um, I, I'm just going to touch on a really great scholar named Scott, Scott Nogle. He's like the, the, uh, the doyen of punning in the ancient world. But he says that, you know, and he's talking about cuneiform writing here, the earliest writing. Writing was considered of divine origin. Puns provided diviners, which included the astrologers, with interpretive strategies. Words were considered the embodiment of the object or idea they represented. Individual words contained the power of essence. And this is where this is key. There was a whole envelope of information that came with every cuneiform sign or part of a word because cuneiform writing is so different than alphabetic writing. It's just so different. The biggest pun, yeah, remember, I had this pun memorized when I was about 10 years old because I went to 13 years of Catholic school. But the nuns had this beaten into me. You know, Jesus says to Peter, he says, and I say to you that you are rock. Petros, Peter's name means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. The Roman Catholic Church interpret this as the revelation that recognizes, you know, Peter as the first pope. Um, That's a serious pun. We don't do that today. We wouldn't look for word plays in the the uh, presidents running for office, running running for president, in the names of the the uh, candidates running for president, and find word play. We wouldn't do that today. But in the ancient world, they would. They they, they would certainly do stuff like that. Okay, so I want to add too. Like this slide is perfect. Oh, I can um, do this. Yeah, because we'll leave this one up. I think that once you start playing with words in this way, there is a spiritual component to it, or at least it subjectively feels like it in the sense that uh, once you get on the path of like connecting the dots, you know, in the sky and the words and sounds like is like there are revelations that just occur to you and things will pop into your path that will connect the dots further. And it's very subjective, but there is a spiritual component to this, at least for the person doing the research, it feels like you get led along as much as it is that you're looking for things. Can I just go back? I'll come back to this slide. I just want to hit this real fast. So when, when Orion or Jesus is walking on water, That is the river of death. When you die, your body dies, your spirit has to endure. In in Catholicism, we think of it as purgatory, but you've got to endure. You've got to make it through the river of death. And if your soul can't be purified in the river of death, you never make it out. Uh, Dead souls go in to the ether world through um, 
the summer solstice point and they exit through the winter solstice point. Uh, and that's how you make it into heaven. That's how you have an apotheosis and become a, a deity. But the what gates I'm to, of Cancer and Capricorn. Right, right. And so, but what you need to understand is a, a an early Christian would have said, wait, if I act like Jesus, I too will walk on the river of death and I won't sink. I will be able to walk over it. And I've got to wonder if that's a pictographic wisdom encoded in that picture as well. That's extremely pagan. And I just wanted to show your viewers that I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, this is another, this is what shows up all the time in cuneiform writing with di- di- divination. You get the term amatnitsirti, which is hidden words, what we would call puns, you know, homophones, homonyms, uh, synonyms. And they're the parishtu shaili, which is the secrets of the gods. So when you find a pun, you're literally looking for puns. If you find one, you assume it's a revelation that has been channeled to you directly from the gods, usually the star gods, and then usually is accompanied with an, you know this admonition, a secret of the great gods, some variation of this. The uninitiated shall not see it. You can't share it with someone who's not a professional astrologer and has been uh, you know studying for years and years and years to know what we know. You know, yeah. another, like just right there, looking at that word, um, the... Nistiri, yeah, Nitsirti, yeah, that's what it's a, it's a, yeah. Well, it it looks a lot. It reminds me of the uh, the Nisi, as in where you get the Nicene, interesting, you know, Dionysus. that's a. We're talking about the logos again. I think that there's a linguistic connection just right there. I think I think there's a lot of linguistic connections. I I pretty much just stick with miracle stories. But um, the, I'm sure there's plenty more to be found in, you know, uh, for other, there's whole minds of them to be found uh, in, for instance, Egyptian and Christian and Egyptian. I mean, I, I don't even dip into Egyptian at all, really. Um, one, of, one of the reasons cuneiform writing is so deeply laden with puns is because of the way it evolved. Cuneiform's writing is, is um, it's, it's, invented by the Sumerians to write their Sumerian language. However, they're sharing Southern Mesopotamia. We have a, a, a gradual accrual of, of a new population immigrates into Southern Mesopotamia. They're Akkadian speakers. Um, and we know them today as the Akkadian-speaking Babylonians and Assyrians. Babylonian is just the Southern dialect of Akkadian. Syrian is the Northern dialect of Akkadian. Um, the, so these Akkadian speakers, they accrue clout in southern Mesopotamia until the first Akkadian speaker uh, ascends a, a Sumerian throne uh, in one of the Sumerian cities. It's Sargon of Akkad in southern Mesopotamia, and that's about 2330 BC. But these Sumerian, uh, excuse me, these Akkadian-speaking people, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, they adopt the cuneiform writing system to write their Akkadian language, but they, they still view a Sumerian as a sacred script, sort of the way um, the Catholic Church said the Mass uh, in Latin because it was deemed the the sacred language of the Mass because Saint Jerome wrote the 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 uh, the official uh, Roman Catholic Bible in Latin, right? So so they're retaining Sumerian. These Babylonians and Syrians are retaining Sumerian through what's called Sumerian logograms. We don't just don't have them. We got one like the this the symbol LB pound. 
Well, LB is the abbreviation for Libra, which is the Latin word for pound. That's the only one I can think of. They've got literally thousands of them. And these Sumerian Akkadian dictionaries are what the, um, the astrologers are studying. So one of this, they're, they're, they're handbooks. So Sumerian logograms, get ready. I'm sorry. I'm just going to apologize to your viewers right now because this is where it gets a little dense here, but I'll do my best to make it as simplified. Um, strap yourself in. So when you look at a, this cuneiform sign, is just this Sumerian cuneiform sign for means sky. It's on. It means sky. However, it can be read dingir, which means God. Um, so on, this cuneiform sign is easier to write than all the wedges you got to write. When you write out Shamu, you got to use three cuneiform signs. It's real tedious. Anyway, it's easier to use a Sumerian logogram. Anyway, so on. It represents the Babylonian word Shamu, which means skies or heavens, and it can be read Dingir, and it, which represents the Babylonian word Ilu, which means God. Okay, so um, and it connects us to our Latin word for the year, on, on, and then on being the uh, a, a uh, solar deity name as well. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's yeah, that's interesting as well. Because the year would be the whole sky, you know, the whole sky going yeah. through its circuit. Yeah, sometimes it's referred to as Mu'ana, the year of the sky, the year of heaven, uh, the heavenly year. Um, I want to just point something out that I thought was really fascinating to your viewers. Like, um, So the original cuneiform sign for the word God uh, was, rep- was represented with a star. So this is like 3000 BC in Sumerian writing. It unequivocally proves that the stars are the gods. They're unequivocal. Stars, constellations planets, they are the deities. So remember that came from Sinan, and it typically, it, it represents the Babylonian word Shamu, which is skies and heavens, and it can be read Dingir, Dingir, where it represents the Babylonian word, Babylonian word Ilu, which means gods. Well, get ready, because it means a whole bunch of other words, and that's the the lexicons, we, we would call them dictionaries or encyclopedias, and there's just lines of them. Sumerian logogram, here's all the Babylonian meanings right next to it. So An can also represent Yao, which means belonging to me. It can represent Kakabu, which means star, constellation. It can represent Shubultu, which means a barley ear. It can represent Kupu, which means to impale. It can represent Sha, which means of. It can represent Asaku, which means taboo. So when you write that one cuneiform sign, you can get skies, heavens, mind, star, barley ear, impaling of, taboo, or God through wordplay, through hidden wordplays. And that's the system that Mesopotamia, Babylonian, that the Magi used when they were looking for the details in the stellar picture story. So the other way wordplay shows up is through homophones in cuneiform writing. Like we have homophones, like to, I'm going to your house to eat two donuts but I ate too much. Like, so two, 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 there, there, there. Um, you, you get the point. We have them in, in English, but you haven't seen anything like it in cuneiform. And so when, if you're looking at transliterated cuneiform, you'll see the cuneiform signs with little numbers next to them. All that means is, like, so I'm going to show you, this is the Sumerian logogram for star or constellation. It's mul, right? So you can read it 
the top cuneiform sign is mul. The second cuneiform sign is also read mul. However, there's so many of them that this is the second most frequent mul sign. So linguist, so we got we to gotta put it down as mul number two. And then there's a mul number three, but that's never used for star. Then there's a mul number four. Then there's a mul number five. Then there's a mul number, there's a mul X, which only the astrologers use. It's an esoteric form of mul. Remember, those little subscript numbers and that little X, that's for the linguists, modern linguists. In the ancient world, every one of those cuneiform signs was read mul. And you just learn from context how to use it. That's why it took three years to learn cuneiform. Today, you like you send your kid off to first grade and you're like, oh, you memorized the alphabet. And then in like a month, your kid's sounding out, I see a cat. You know what I mean? Well, it wasn't that way in cuneiform. It took three years to really become a decent scribe, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Languages yeah. have improved greatly. Yeah. So anyway, there, there's every one of those cuneiform signs has other readings that mean other that represent other Babylonian words. So I'll just I'll just use the top one, right? So that first mul sign we call it mul number one, right? So mul one is it can represent kakabu in Babylonian, which means star or constellation, but it also represents the word shatirtu inscription. Remember, stars are writing, right? Uh, it can represent shitru, which means writing. It can re- uh, represent nabatu. Uh, which means to shine brightly. It can also be read mulu, which means arrow. It means mululu in Babylonian, which is arrow. And you you can go through that with each one of these cuneiform signs. Um, so when you write the word mul, you write the Sumerian logogram mul, secondary meanings embedded within it include after the word star, which is or God, which is the most common use of this cuneiform sign. It can also mean shining brightly, inscription, writing, arrow, foundation, ornament, pierce, wood wasp, watercourse, distant time, fruit, feeling elated, field, cow, moon, month. And that's not all. That's just some of them. So this is the level of wordplay that's embedded with each cuneiform sign. So when I first started to find this, when I was studying, I remember back in grad school, I was like, there's a Bible's worth of words up here. I bet this is the basis for the Bible. And that's where I'm going with all this stuff. So where this shows up most uh, uh, pellucidly is in uh, the Enuma Elish ta- Tablet 7, which is Tablet 7 of the Babylonian creation myth. So they use it. Uh, so one of the titles for um, Jupiter, the, the planet god Jupiter, which is Marduk, is Nibiru, which means crossing. It's when... Jupiter crosses the midpoint of the sky. So the literally it uses the title Nibiru, it means crossing. So this Muldingir Nibiru just means the star god crossing. So Numenolish line 128 says the god Nero, Nibiru, the god crossing. There's no verb of being in Babylonian. You got to insert the verb of being on your own. It is his star, which in the skies they cause to appear. Every one of those words for that line comes from wordplay and how you spell Nibiru. So if you were writing that uh, as an astrologer, you could write it Multu Dingir Nibiru. So Multu is its second, it also represents other Babylonian words. One is the the uh, the verb uh, Shupu, which means to cause to appear, and you just render it into a third person finite form. They cause to appear. Dean Gear, we just saw, can be, can represent the Babylonian word Elu, which is God. Dean Gear can represent 
the word kakabu, which means star. Dean gear is also red an, which means skies. Nay number two, it doesn't appear to be used here. B represents uh, the pronoun uh, shu, which is his, and ru can uh, represent the prepositions, sh, uh, preposition sha, which can be translated as which and in. Then they're just rearranging those into line uh, 128 of a new Middle East tablet seven. And it's, it just says it right there. Dingir Nibiru, Kakab, Shu, Ina, Shame, Ushapu, the god Nibiru, his star, which in the skies they cause to appear. Um, and that, they do that for 163 lines in New Middle East Tablet 7. So that's the technique they're using. So there's this peculiar phenomenon that shows up in the ancient world. Um, scholars refer to it as hostage astrologers. So if you're a vanquishing king and you take over another kingdom in a war, first thing you do is you round up all of the diviners, especially the astrologers, and you bring them into your entourage. Best example of this is Daniel, Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II, when he um, subjugates Judah. He rounds up uh, Daniel and three of his countrymen, takes them into the entourage of the king. Daniel rises up to be the, the head magician of the Babylonian, the head magi of the, the Babylonian astrologers. And remember, um, he includes the term astrologer. They use Castine, Chaldean. Um, so when they use the term, you know, magus, they're talking about an astrologer. Uh, where it also shows up, you think of Homer, um, there's a lot of scholars, and even in ancient texts, there's uh a lot of evidence that Homer was a Babylonian astrologer who was taken hostage, probably on the Phoenician coast, and brought back to Greece, where he learned Greek, and he taught the uh, Greek readers and writers how to read uh, this Lamashi writing in stars and create autochthonous or indigenous uh, Greek religious scriptures, you know, what we would call the Greek myths. Uh, so anyway, that's an interesting thing about that. Uh, the Magi show up at Jesus' birth, and Jesus is almost unequivocally, remember, if you were a Jew or a pagan, um, you assume Jesus was a magician. You can see Jesus there uh, using a magic wand to raise Lazarus from the dead. All of the pagans thought Jesus was a magician. Um, so yeah, one of the most intriguing aspects of this whole story of Star of Bethlehem, I'm, getting, I'm sorry, getting off course here, but I wanted you to understand that Barosis writes a history of Babylonia. You know, he's an astrologer. Why would you call on an astrologer to write a history, uh, not only in Babylonian, but he writes it in Greek for a Greek audience? Well, this so, is a great point. This is what yeah. I'm talking about with Barosis. I think it could be an example of this history of ancient Babylon as a form of astrotheology masquerading as ancient history. I mean, even calling it ancient Sumer is basically saying late summer. <laughs> you know, yeah, is yeah. that a time yeah, of the yeah. year we're talking <laughs> yeah. about? Because when you look at the, especially the, all the places it, where, you know, Brutus shows up in Roman history or the Brutus of Troy that is supposedly the founder of Britain. Um, you know, Brutus is the one that kills the seventh king of the last seven kings of Rome. The seven kings of Rome, I think, probably correlate to the seven months that are warm. Then the yeah. five 
cold, uh, cold months that happen. Anyway, like I'm just kind of touching on the surface of things here, but I think Barosis is a great example to go to as a, a very strong thread of evidence for what I'm talking about here that the, the Babylon, I think, could be kind of a different version of the story of Troy. Yeah. And when you just say, you know, Barosis is one of the, the, the Magi. He, he's what, he's who showed up at Jesus's birth. Remember, the first people that identify Jesus's birth are pagan ast- Babylonian astrologers. And you're like, whoa, this sounds sounding really, really pagan. You know what I mean? So, so nativity themes, uh, common in Matthew and Luke's nativity narratives. So they don't disagree in every aspect. There's a few of them that are the same. One of them is that, uh, that there's a pregnant virgin and her name is Mariam. One of the ways to read, the belief is that Mariam means bitter sea. It's out of the Hebrew. Um, so you got this pregnant virgin. We already know that. Got an infant kid. You got a manger. But you also have this woman, and in Mesopotamia, her title is Obscene. She is a pharaoh constellation, an agricultural pharaoh, and she, body, she embodies a, a certain agricultural goddess. Um, so, but it's interesting when you look at this, the alternate readings for the Obscene, which means pharaoh in Sumerian. Ab can also be read Unu, and Unu just means, it's one of the Sumerian terms for virgin. Um, the scene, cuneiform sign scene, can be read C, and C means to turn into. So you have these word plays embedded in the Babylonian title, the Sumerian really title for uh, for Virgo, which is the Pharaoh turns into the Virgin, and that's how I think uh, part, Greek Virgin came about. Well, also the concept has a symbolic match to it in that a Pharaoh is like a yoni in the earth. That is yeah. virginal. It, a furrow is what you then sow seeds into. Yeah. It's in essence, you, you know, a, a terrestrial vagina. You know, yeah. the seed is semen. You know what I mean? And you could certainly picture it that way. And I'm sure that's exactly how they pictured it. I know Native Americans picture it that way when I do research out here in the rock art, um, which is a different show. But um, so you keep going here and you're like, wait a minute. So you go a little bit further, and then you look at that obscene sign. Well, ob, it's literally the word for sea or ocean. And in Babylonian, especially first millennium Babylonian, late first millennium, it's rendered maratu, means sea. But aratu also means bitter. And you're like, wait, bitter sea, mar-yam, mar-yam, that's what Mary's name means. Mar-yam is just from the Hebrew, miryam, you know, bitter sea. Um, so you get the pregnant virgin, bitter sea or Miriam. So, um, and I just show you the Hebrew there in, in, in Hebrew, it's Miriam. Mir means bitter, yam means sea, but it gets rendered into the Septuagint as Mariam, Mariam. And you can see it there. I just transliterate it for you. it's Mar, yam. And that's, that's Mary. So, her with name, uh, pictured with a yoni there, yeah, as yeah, a, right. coming out of a yoni. Yeah, that's yeah. The, that's the, the 
remember, I belong to the local Roman Catholic Church here in Salt Lake City, uh, St. Anne's, and there's the, the big uh, Virgin of Guadalupe Festival is uh, coming up in a couple days. So, um, so this is I just used her picture there, the, the blessed the Virgin Mary. So, um, so now we have another thing to add to it. We have a virgin. She's pregnant. Her name's Bitter Sea, which is what Mary's name is. She's next to an infant king and a manger, and you're like, okay. This is starting to feel like a celestial myth that that was translated and became the basis for the birth story of Jesus. Then you go a little bit. Uh, yeah. OK. And I just I just reiterated there just where you got the word pregnant, just to remind you that there's a pregnancy goddess ebbing out of the Western star, stars of Virgo. Yeah. And a later connection to that, Eru, mm-hmm. the pregnant goddess, I think is Eros in the Greek, you, which transliterated actually is going to give you. The uh, the Ada can be an E or an mm-hmm. H. So the E-R-O-S is also very much similar to like giving us an H-R-S, which C yeah. and uh, H and C-H interchange often philologically as well. So in Eros, which is very similar to Eru, the pregnant virgin, yeah. uh, you're getting your H-R-S of Horus. You're getting your C-H-R-S of Christ or Chris yeah. or Crest. It goes on. Yeah, no, there, there's there, there's certainly more. It's just that there's a finite amount of time in my life, so I, I have to focus on, like, I just figure I'm just going to... That's why we need more people looking at this stuff. Yeah, there's no, too I, many I dots agree. To connect. I agree. I totally agree, Chance. I, I'm with you. So, Child King and the Tivities is also the Christus. Um, so, you see it. I'm just going to show you another pun. So, there's... a. Uh, there's one commentary that the magicians use, and in it, Sharu is equated with the uh, it's equated with the logogram, the Sumerian logogram May, and May is also the Sumerian logogram for Peshishu in Babylonian. It just means anointed one. So you have the word Christ child and king literally as an epithet for this 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 child king star Regulus. There's one other possibility that I feel is less likely, but also possible. Um, this child is embedded in the lion constellation. It's typically read, uh, written ah, just the letter A in, in the HMS payment, but ah can be read may, and, and may just means Pashishu anointed one. It's the Sumerian logogram for uh, anointed one, which is Christ. So that's how I think you ended up with a Christ child star. The Immaculate Impregnation by the Holy Spirit, they're common themes too. The actual term, Numahagion, uh, it actually means holy wind. And then you just turn to the, then you just turn to the, the baby, the, the Christ child star in Leo, right? So Leo is. That's also where we're going to get like the Hagia Sophia in alternate versions of this very same mythology that uh, like the Mandeans and Gnostics were coming up with. Yeah, they had, again, there are so many esoteric levels of punning here. And there's even celestial, I'm sure, pictures that I'm overlooking that are there um, because I get hyper fixated on trying to unpack all. I mean, it takes a long time to find all that stuff that's sitting on your screen right there. But you look at the line, right? It's it's just a smear logogram. Ah, it's just real simple to write. It means line, right? However, ah is also the smear and logogram for ina, which means in or by, as in by means of. Then you go down to your, your regulus, your child star there, right? Well, 
its Babylonian title is Sheru, which means both child and king. However, it's sometimes written as a Sumerian logogram, which is Tor. And Tor is the Sumerian word for child. Okay, so you, so you have Tor. I'm like, okay, so there's two ways to write that, that child, uh, that Christ child star there, Regulus, right? However, Sheru is also definitely a, a, a Dingir, a god. It's definitely described as a god. And Dingir also means Elu, which means holy. It means, you know, it's the word holy. Tor, as I just showed you, is one of the titles for the child. Can also be read two. And two is, uh, it's a homophone for the Sumerian word that means wind. So Tor number five, Tor five signs, they're just reading it, Tor. It means child or baby, right? It can also be read do, which means aladu in Babylonian, to beget, to sire. It represents the Babylonian, Babylonian word to beget or to sire. So you write down the puns. You get tor, do, ah, dingir, to. Uh, the child begotten by the holy wind. And so that's where I think the idea of the Holy Spirit came from. It's actually embedded in as wordplay in Leo and Regulus in the Sumerian and Babylonian titles for Leo and Regulus. So that's great. Um, and then like in other cultures, wind is thought to be very much the divine breath of God. Uh, that's, yeah. you know, the Egyptians considered that. That's why the uh, Egyptian hieroglyph for, for God, Neturu, like, or Netur, like God, mm-hmm. big God, I think. Yeah was a, a flag <laughs> of Vexellum because yeah. of the wind that animates it. But then another interesting link might be the Phoenician word, sir, which is actually spelled more like T-Y-R-E or T-U-R. Mm. Okay. And that meant Lord and rock. Okay. So you're getting, you know, there's other word plays between languages of, of equally yeah. Magi-esque cultures like the Phoenicians where you're getting this ter, sir, child, lord, king, rock. I'm sure there's many, many more. And there's many more puns that show up throughout, you know, Canaanite mythology, Phoenician mythology, Canaanite and Phoenician are kind of the same thing. But um, so but so you get the impregnation, this first it's not a Judaic theme, the impregnation, the virginal impregnation um, of a woman and by this Holy Spirit. Um, I just want to show that Joseph is up there. You know, uh, that, the child king star uh, is, is written Sharu. Uh, it means king, child, right? It's also equated with, it's equated with a lot of logograms. I mean, like 50 of them. And one of them is odd, which means father. And, um, and so that's what Joseph is. And Sharu is also equated with Lugal, which just means king in Sumerian. And but Lugal is also read Shar, and Shar is this is the logogram for um, Imaid, which means he increases. So you get the words: the father he increases, the pregnant Virgin Mary gave birth to child King Jesus. I'm just I'm putting them all together. I'm trying to show you that Joseph is there. He's probably not a constellation. They're getting his presence from a wordplay embedded in the uh, the child King star. So, and that would be yeah. why, you know, as not a constellation, just a more minor wordplay, why he would be in the account of one gospel and not the other. Yeah, he's not a major theme. He's he he's he is, but he's not in the nativity. He plays a minor role. So, 
the Christ child's name is Jesus, or, or you know, he saves Yeshua in uh, in Hebrew, uh, which can be translated "he saves" or "he will save." Um, so you find that term that term literally embedded in the writing of um, the the Leo. So if you look on the left there, you get "multu." Well, I'll just say "mul-ah," right? It's the "multu" sign. So it literally means constellation lion. So when, uh, first of all, the ah can also be read mu, and mu means to name. It's the it's Sumerian logogram that means to, to name, right? However, when you push those two signs together, they make a new sign, a cuneiform sign called car, the car sign. And car is the Sumerian logogram that means tear, uh, which is he will save, or he saves you. I would translate it as a future tense. He would, he will save. So you get his wordplay. You get name the child. He will save. And that's Jesus's name. That's probably where they get. Oh, it the gets idea. better, John, because he's Jesus Ben Pantera. Yeah. Well, a panther is a big cat. Ben <laughs> means son of, uh, but he's also a carpenter. Yeah. Carpenter is one of the titles for cancer, which is like half a constellation over is um, carpenter. The cuneiform sign for carpenter, cuneiform sign for camper, for cancer are the same same ones in late Babylonian texts. It's kind yeah, of that, that, that simple phonetic of car, that shows up in many places, and there's a lot of links there. Yeah. There would be yeah, too many to go into. Yeah, surely more than I'm presenting here. Um, so the child's birthplace, Bethlehem, literally means, it, it, in Hebrew, it's Bethlehem, uh, house of bread. Um, so it's just embedded right in there. So um, the child star, we saw that it, it's sometimes written it, it, infrequently, but it's sometimes written with the Sumerian uh, logogram tour. You see that tour five sign up there at the top of the screen. And it can also be read to and do. And um, in the latter case, do means a walid, which is the passive form. It's just a passive form of to give birth he, it, it, or to be born. Uh, it, it means to bear, but it can be used in the passive tense uh, to to be born. So he was born. You could easily translate it as he was born. Um, Sheru is equated with a whole bunch of Sumerian logograms. The big one is Utu, the Utu sign you see there uh, in the middle of your screen. That U number two sign, that means a whole bunch of Babylonian words, including Sheru, child king. B2 house, Shah of, Akalu bread, uh, and Ina in. So when you put all the puns down, when you lay them all down, you get the child king was born in house of bread, or we would render it at Bethlehem, Bethlehem. And so if people's heads are spinning a little bit, trying to compare what we're looking at here and all of this polysemy with modern languages, keep in mind, I think, is important to recognize that regular folks weren't literate. So this was a whole, like this was people's and the people that were doing this writing, it was their profession and it was sort of like their secret craft as well. So it wasn't like they needed this language to be highly functional for mass adoption. Yeah. And I just want to emphasize, that's a great point chance. You know, Mesopotamia is incredibly 
illiterate. I mean, it's it's got like, you know, a small, I mean, probably single digits percentage of the population is literate and they're all working for a king. You know, they're, they're all working in a, a, a chieftain or a king or a, a governor. They're, they're working in the entourage of the, of a public office. And, it and probably years. even coming up with their own uh, meanings and usages of these logograms as you know shorten shorthand for things so like in one region at one time they're like okay this is a convenient shorthand we mean this when we say this and they know what they mean but then another place another time they're using the same shorthand to mean something else yeah exactly i I, yeah exactly but don't fret uh interverse viewers because there's 600 cuneiform signs and they all have a whole handful, if not some of them have like 30 readings. You know what I mean? So it took years to master this. They were the polyglots of the ancient world. So so if you're feeling that's why I put all the footnotes in so that scholars can check my work. It it wouldn't hurt uh, if you if you bought the book. You can check the footnotes. Um, I try to give I, I give you all the, the texts I use um, to to. So you can verify what I'm doing here. It's not like I'm making this stuff up. Yeah, I, I did a few checks where I could and things checked out, <laughs> but yeah. it's uh, it's massive. You know, this is like life's work yeah. stuff to yeah, you, even complete just this one book. So I'm excited yeah. to see where you go next with it. Yeah, thank you. So uh, history verification. We just talked about that pictures uh, in the stars uh, uh, and wordplay embedded in those picture stories. Uh, reveal the details and the action. So now we can get to Luke's nativity narrative, right? So he tells you that, you know, there's a pregnant virgin named Bitter Sea. There's a, a swaddled child lying in a manger. There's an angel of the Lord. There's shepherds. There's a multitude of a he- heavenly army. Um, so where are these themes coming from? Well, when you look at the night sky, again, they're coming from that. I call it the the, uh, the 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 virgin child manger tableau. It's just basically Virgo. It, when um, it's pretty much when Regulus culminates in the middle of the sky. So it's Virgo, Leo, and and Cancer. But but notice Orion is on the western horizon and Libra is rising in the southeast. Those two constellations become really important. So let me show you how. So Orion's title. It's typically Orion's described in astronomical tablets as Sipa, means shepherd. You could also put it in the collective. Sumerian singulars can be used in the collective. No one's going to have a heart attack. The Babylonian is Reu, which can mean shepherd or shepherds. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, that word is considered the plural. So, so Orion embodies a little group of shepherds, right? So, and let me just go on. But there's another way to write Orion, right? He's got another title. He's called a sukal, which is a messenger or um, you can actually, that translates as angel. But uh, you'll see that in a second. But he's, he's, he's a deified uh, messenger is the best way to translate it. So Dean Gear, remember, it means many, many other words. One of the Sumerian logograms for uh, meanings of Dean Gear, the Sumerian logogram, Dean Gear is Belu, which is Lord. Dean Gear also represents the pronoun or the uh, preposition shah, which is of. Sukal means messenger, which is uh, agalos, which is just angel. It's what an angel is. So literally embedded in Orion are the words, you know, angel of the Lord and the word shepherds. So remember in the southeast, oops, sorry. In the southeast, remember there was that rising Libra. 
So in cuneiform, one of the ways to write Libra is Dingir Gish Erin. It just means the God wooden scale. Um, and Erin is a special kind of scale uh, for, you know, weighing valuable items. I just wrote down many of the meanings for Dingir. It means God, Ilu God. It means Shamu, heavens. It means Shah of. Gish, which is the word wood, or it can also mean tree, typically represents the Babylonian word itsu, which is wood. It can also mean shamu, because gish is the Sumerian word for tree, because trees go up into heaven. Arene means zibanitu in Babylonian kind of scale. and But arene is also the word tzabu, which means army. So you have an army of heaven. Those word plays uh, you know, pr- produce the, the pun army of heaven. And so um, I wonder just, if this is related to our, again, back to Bacchus, Libra Potter, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the scale it, Libra is you're correlating with the tree. Yeah, it has multiple meanings. That word uh, geesh has so many different meanings, Sumerian meanings, but, but you can see, remember Orion was on the Western horizon there. It embodies the word shepherds and angel of the Lord. Uh, Libra embodies army of heaven. And I believe that's where Luke figured out that there was an army of heaven and shepherds present at the birth of Jesus. I think that's where he got these story elements from because they don't show up in Matthew. Right. So then he says, Luke 2, 7 says, and she bore her firstborn son and swaddled him and laid him in a manger. That just comes right out of this stellar tableau. Um, remember, there's a pregnancy goddess embedded in uh, Virgo's Western stars. She should be drawn a little bit more to the to uh, the viewers right here towards her head. Um, we, my illustrator, uh, wonderful illustrator Elizabeth Hardy, had to had to do our drawings during COVID, so we did everything over the phone. So I'm sending her. They're they're all reconstructions of the ancient night sky, and you know about 85 AD. So, you know, so sometimes she might be a little bit off on a star, but, but notice that uh, she's the pregnancy goddess holds a uh, date front, which is, it's just this, it's a, a shorter, it's her title, Eru means to be pregnant. Her other title is Eru, which is a synonym, not, it's a synonym for uh, date front. Um, so, cause date front is in Akkadian, date front is Aru or Eru. So, Datefront in Sumerian is Pesh. Uh, Pesh is a Sumerian logogram that reads Ulid, represents the Babylonian verb Ulid, Ulid, she bore. We saw Leo is typically read Ah for lion, but lion means many other Babylonian words. One of them is Ina in. Ah can also represent Aplu in Babylonian, which means firstborn son. Leo. One of its titles is Labu, and uh, that's one of the words for lion. It's a poetic term for lion. It's written Labu, like there. I'll show you the cuneiform signs you write it with. And Labu is also how you write that verb right there, Labu, which means to wrap up. Regulus, we saw as the child king star. When that child king is written uh, as, a, as a king in Sumerian, it's Lugal. Lugal is also read Shar. It's a kind of cloth. So you get the, if you look at the picture there, you get the wordplay. She bore firstborn son, wrapped the child in cloth. That's a one-to-one correlation with, with, with what shows up in uh, the words that Luke uses. I think it's in uh, 2 verse 7. I have to look at it again. 
Um, so I have a, I have a question about Libra to yeah. go back to that. Um, now in the mole appen, mole yeah, molapine. That's the yeah. star atlas that the yeah. the the cuneiform star atlas yeah. has got the forty eight, uh, similar to the forty eight yeah, the, yeah. the Greeks imported. Yeah. Now you were talking about what the Sumerian lexographers were calling that area of the sky, but they weren't actually referring to a a scale constellation were they that's just wordplay that's in there no irene means scale but the same exact remember each cuneiform sign uh, every sumerian logogram often means multiple words and another word for the sumerian word for scale which is irene is uh sabu which just means army Okay, so, so have, what was what was the area of Libra in the Molapin? Like, what constellation did the ancient uh, Sumerians? It was Libra, yeah. It was, so Libra's um, Libra's originally was the claws of Scorpion, the claws of Scorpio, um, and it's probably a later constellation that came into being with precession of the equinoxes. As the stars moved, they had to. Um, Mark solstices and equinox points, and um, and probably that's where Libra came from. It's a scale; it's balancing out. It's a perfect balance of the the the, the seasons, right? It's when the, there's half day, half night. Uh, that's kind of where probably where the concept comes from. Okay, so I was I just wanted to be sure about that. That yeah. we weren't saying that they had a Libra constellation, but interestingly, asterisms. Yeah, they did. It's borrowed, the, the the Greeks borrow it from uh, Mesopotamia. They borrow it from the Sumerians. And then it just, the Babylonians just start using their own titles for it. Sometimes they write it in Sumerian. Sometimes they write it as Zibanitu, which is the Babylonian title for that same scale that the Sumerians called Irene. The Babylonians called it Zibanitu. So that's where that goes. Yeah. Okay. And interesting. Okay. We can continue. Yeah. So then you just break down all these, these word plays and you get literally the sign that, um, of the Christ child that she, you know, um, that Mary bore a firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloth and laid, and it doesn't say lay him in a manger in this part. I'm just showing you the first part that the fact that they have the word, she bore a firstborn son, wrapped the child in cloth, right? That's, that's in the stars. That's just in this stellar tableau of the pregnant virgin, uh, the child, and the the manger asterism, right? So, and then you get the further word place. You laid him in a manger. When you write, anytime you write the mul two sign, it, it represents uh, a finite form of the verb amedu, which is mead. She laid, or just it, it's the it's another title. It means lion. There, one of the, there's a whole bunch of ways to write lion in uh, in the ancient cuneiform text. Sumerian, one of the ways is or ah. Sometimes it's just or. Sometimes it's just ah because uh, they're abbreviating it. Um, you know, uh, so so I'm trying to just break down the various titles you see there. The Multu sign uh, is probably comes at the front of every one of those. Star figures. It, it could come at the, every one of those star figures. It's a special determinative. You write it in front of star names, star and constellation names. So it, it also means she laid. 
or can mean which and that's also like part of the concept that they are deities, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're stars and they're de- every star is a deity. Sometimes they include the the word dingir. Sometimes it's just they already know that. Um, you're looking in heaven when you study astronomy and astrology. You're studying the gods in heaven. You're studying the most uh, pristine world that exists, which is why you get the the Our Father on Earth as it is in heaven. It's the idea that we want to replicate on Earth what's going on in heaven, which is what astrology is based on. You're trying to replicate on earth what you're seeing going on in heaven because what's going on in heaven is perfect. Um, so, you know, or is, you, know, you can see it up there. Uh, sometimes the lion's just written or, but it means lion, but it can also uh, be the Sumerian logogram for him. We saw that ah means in and M44 is the manger. So you get, she laid him in a manger. And I, I'm, I'm getting the sense that um, that's, that's where they got the, that's where she got uh Sorry, that's where Luke got uh, verse two seven from. That she 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 gave birth to her firstborn son. She swaddled him and laid him in a manger. It comes right out of the stars. Um, I just wanted to show you in the same region where shepherds living outside and keeping watch during the night over the flocks. I just want to show you that very mundane line has an absolute direct correlate in the stars. We don't really need to go into it right now. But yeah, your, your your viewers can, you know, uh, when this goes up on your site, they can just press pause there. I go I go into it extensively in the book. Um, just um, but every single one of those words, shepherds in the same region dwelling outside in the fields, watching over the flock in the night. The Greek for that has a direct correlate as wordplay embedded in that stellar tableau. Um and just behind uh, Orion is uh, Mashu. It means twins. It's it's in Mesopotamia. Um, Gemini isn't a twin. It's twin deities, but it's often a twin mountain. And one of its titles written typically Mash, but Mash can also mean other words in Babylonian, including region, fields, over, outside, and open country. So. <laughs> So it's pretty direct meat match up there. And again, I don't want to just get beleaguer this and get too linguistic with the, with your viewers because I know that this can be heavy duty and like, all right, I've seen a few puns. Um, but I, I do want to go into the sign because this is what makes it magical. Um, you, you will find an infant wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Again, the, the Greek text says this to you, the sign. This is literally what it says in the Greek, comes right out of this stellar tableau you're looking at right there, right? You look at the tail of Leo, sometimes it's written kun-ah, uh, which is like a uh, tail of the lion, right? And kun can also be read kunu, which forms a homophone with kunu, which means you. It's the plural form of you. Um, it's typically attached um, to uh, prepositions. Sometimes this is this is one of the crazy titles for Leo, but it can be written Gish Ug or Gish Piri. Gish means wood or tree, like a wooden a wooden literally it means wooden lion, or Gish Piri means wooden lion. But they don't render it that way. They then render it into its Babylonian title, which is typically Neshu or uh, Lu. So. So you have these word plays there. And again, remember, ah uh, uh, is the typical spelling for lion in the first century. Ah uh, can also represent this, the Babylonian word ana, which is two or four. 
Ah can also be read the e, it's e for a, e or a, which means this. So you write down your puns, you get e, ah, kunu, and gish, this to you, the sign. That's exactly how it shows up. And that's the words that the angel of the Lord says to the shepherds. Remember, Orion embodies the words angel of the Lord and shepherds. And that's literally what the angel of the Lord spoke. Okay. Um, so remember, and then it says you will find. Uh, remember, uh, Orion has, believe it or not, one of Orion's uh, Sumerian logographic spellings is Utu. It's pronounced Utu. It means shepherd. Just means shepherd. And um, it can be plural. It can also mean plural. But Utu also represents a verb in Babylonian. Uh, it's the Babylonian verb uh, Amaru, which means to find, which you just render into a finite form. Uh, it's tatam, Tatamra, which is you will find. Okay. And so I, we use pronouns. We say like, you know, I find, I find, you find, he, she, it finds. You know, we have pronouns and we use two different words in in inflective Semitic languages. The pronoun is embedded in the verb. So, so when you get a verb, you kind of, they just take it out of the, what they call the finite form. We would call it like run, you know, Uh, I run, uh, you run, he, she, it runs, you know, and, so the runs part, that's how they would render uh, the word Amaru. And I'm sorry I'm getting really technical here, but it's a third person um, plural form of, of find. It means you will find, plural. So, uh, I, I, again, it's in the footnotes, and I, this is the hard part of this. It's, it's very complicated to unpack, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You should see all the highlights and notes and scraps of paper littering my copy of this book. Like, I'll spend quite a a long time just on one chapter. I even haven't even finished the book. I had to skip ahead to get to chapter 12 to prepare for this. So, so, you know, and then you just go through, you know, Regulus is a star, which means, you know, Mul means star, but it also means a Meidu, which is lying or to lie down, lie, uh, place something on something else. Sharu, of course, it means king, but it also means baby, infant, child. Lugal, which is another way to write Regulus, means, you know, it means king, but its alternate reading is a fine and a very expensive form of cloth. Leo, we saw over and over, it's typically written ah, ah means lion, but it can also mean ina, which is in in Babylonian. Uh, A poetic form of Leo is labu, which means lion. But it's also the verb to wrap up. And uh, M44 we saw is fatine, it means manger. So you get, you write down all the puns, you get an infant wrapped in cloth lying in a manger or an infant swaddled lying in a manger. Um, so Matthew's Christmas star in a supernatural motion. I just want to go into that. So Matthew's story elements, he's talked about a Christ king, Christ child king star. Uh, the child, he, he has the, the, the magi saying, where is the one being born king of the Jews? He's got a pregnant virgin named Miriam. He's got, he doesn't say three astrologers. He implies three astrologers. And I, I think there's a reason for that. He says that they brought treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Jesus is born in a house. 
inherits in in this show. And I'm just I'm just trying to show you that there's a stellar picture of this in the stars uh, when you use Lamashi writing. So, well, you know, I, I just have to make a joke though that the Greek word for treasures it kind of indicates that the real treasure is your thesaurus. Yeah, yes. You need a thesaurus for yeah, this type of work that's to right. find these treasures. <laughs> yes, it is. And, you know, you might find gold, frankincense, and myrrh while you're finding all these words in a thesaurus. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, that's exactly. Uh, so in case your viewers didn't get that, the word for thesaurus and the, the word for treasures is the same word. Yeah, and um, you could probably yeah. find the story of Myrrha, the mother of Adonis who yeah. had a virgin birth and got turned into a tree. And uh, you could probably find all of that in this same stellar tableau. Yeah. And I just want to show you, you can just trace it very easily to a picture story. So the astrologers show up, they say, where is the one having been born King of the Jews? We've seen his star in the East and we came to worship him. Well, uh, so look at the middle of the haunches of the lion there. So we got Regulus. That's our child, our Christ child, the King star, Sharu, right? So Leo, it's it's a deity. So sometimes they can write it Dingir. Lu is a Babylonian term for lion, right? So you could write it Dingir Lu, you know, the deity lion, or a, a rare but present form of the word for Sumerian logogram for 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 uh, God is Mu. So you can write it Mu Lu which is the deity lion, the lion deity, right? However, Mu has many different readings. One of them is Yah. And not only is it the reading Yah, but Yah also means of. It's also one of the Sumerian logograms that means of. Lu, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, a long U, Lu. It equates with the pronunciation of the Sumerian logogram Lu which is also read Udu. So when you put alternate readings for Mu and Lu down, you get Mu can be read Ya, and Lu can be read Udu. And Ya Udu is the Babylonian term for, it's Ya Udu, which is the Babylonian word for Judah. So you get the words, the child king of Judah. And my thought is that's where they got the uh, that the idea that this king was not just any old king; he was the, going to be the king of Judah. He was going to be the king of the Jews, and I'm thinking that that's where they got it from, which is kind of an interesting wordplay. Um, but you can you can check all the uh, all, all the footnotes; they'll match up. You I get most of it from the uh, the uh, online Pennsylvania Sumerian Dictionary. A lot of it's from the Sumerian, uh, the uh, Chicago Assyrian Dictionary. And the other one I like to use is the Kadeshi's Handvorter book by Von Soden, Wolfram Von Soden. I, I like that one a lot. So again, there's our, that's just how you spell, ah, in case you were wondering, it's just one cuneiform sign with three wedges. Um, so the ah, it, literally, it's also the Sumerian logogram for three, means three, which it's probably why three astrologers is implied. Ah is also equated with the logogram Abba. And Abba is one of the titles for Tupsharu, which is astrologer or astrologers. You know, you could, again, when you have Abba, a Sumerian logogram can also stand for the collective. 
So you have not only an astrologer, you have three astrologers, and that's probably how many showed up at the birth scene of Jesus. You wouldn't show up to the birth of a king if you were an eminent astrologer without a gift. You wouldn't be there. So three gifts would imply three astrologers. Um, although they don't say that. However, three is embedded in the, uh, the literally the title for lion, which not only can mean lion, it can also mean uh, three. I wonder if the word great is in there somewhere and we can have a thrice great child king. Yeah, you know where it is. I know exactly where it is. So one of the titles for the lion is uh, or mock. Or means, it literally means giant predator you know and mock means giant or great so okay so you got a thrice great yeah Yeah. there it is is. that's there too in case you're wondering again me and you got to team up yeah i think so so um the treasures you know the gold frankincense and myrrh right so where do they come from so you look at the child star it's sheru remember it's sheru is equated with and I mean, I'll bet it's equated with 55 Sumerian logograms. One of them is U, and U not only does it mean Sharu, which is king and child, it also means house. Another term for Sharu is another logogram for Sharu, which is the child king, is Mon, and Mon can mean gold. And we saw earlier that, uh, remember, uh, the pregnant Virgin Mary is Virgo, right? So remember, she's holding a wheat star. Um, she, Spica is the wheat ear. It's an ear of wheat. Well, w- one of the Sumerian logograms for wheat is the Kib sign. It's the Sumerian logogram Kib, but it's also red geek, which means frankincense. Um, so there's your frankincense. Um, remember, the original title for uh, for the pregnant Virgin Mary was Obscene. Ab is where we got Maratu, which means both bitter and sea. It's a, it's a homonym, like the way I'd say a bear in the woods and to bear a child. That's what Maratu is like. But bitter is also equated with the Sumerian logogram Shesh. So, uh, so you get uh, Shesh can mean treasures and it can mean myrrh. So as secondary meanings, these secondary, really synonyms in this case, uh, you get treasures in myrrh, and then you just write down the puns. You get treasures of gold, frankincense, myrrh. They're the gifts that the astrologers bring to the baby Jesus. Um, let me just point out, uh, so you have Herod there, Herodus. Her, 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 I'm trying to remember how to pronounce his name. I, I usually have to look off the Greek because I have reading knowledge of Greek, but I'm, I'm not a great Greek scholar. But his name means hero's ode or hero's song. So I'm looking at that, and I'm like, oh, well, just in the southern part of the the, the, the birth tableau is uh, Hydra. And Hydra, or I guess Hydra in, Egypt, in English, one of its Sumerian titles is Dingir Ushum, means the horned serpent deity. So Ushum, it means horned serpent. It means Bashmu in Babylonian, which means horned serpent. But yeah, Ushu, you can even rearrange the letters of Hydra and basically get Herod yeah, with probably, the alternate spelling. No, that's true. But his name means hero song. And I'm wondering if what they're doing is Ushum represents the Babylonian word uh, Karadu hero. And uh, it's a deity. And uh, deity is 
Elu in Babylonian, but Elu forms a homophone with Elu, the same exact spelling. It's the Babylonian word for a kind of song. And Dingir can also mean Shah of in Babylonian. So you get song of the hero or hero song. And I'm wondering if Herod was perceived as the embodiment of Hedra, this kind of scary dragon, which would make sense uh, if you were looking for Jesus's birth story and you had no eyewitness testimony to go off of. So I just want to point out that stars, uh, just absolutely supernatural movement. So what happens is in, in the Greek text, it says the star went before them until having come, it stood over the house where the child was. Every one of those words is based on secondary meaning for the Christ child star, um, Regulus. So the star itself can be read, it can be written uh, mole four. Remember that mole, one of those mole signs I was showing? Mole four is comprised of two cuneiform signs, Ugu. And Ugu is just the Sumerian word for them, right? Sheru is definitely a deity. It's Elu in Babylonian. However, in uh, some of the, in like Syrian lands, I think it's in the western part of uh, Akkadian-speaking lands, it's pronounced Elu. And Elu is also the word for over. Remember, the child is also, it's Tor. Tor can be read do, which means to come. Tor can be read to, which can mean to lead in Sumerian. Uh, Sheru is equated with the word Lord, and a, syn- and a synonym for the word Lord is Ain. So Sheru is equated with the word Ain, which means Lord and until. Uh, Sheru is equated with the word Lu, the Sumerian logogram Lu, which it literally means man, but it can also mean to stand. Sheru is equated with the word the Sumerian logogram U, which means house. Uh, a more common term for house is the A sign, which means where. Sheru is equated with the uh, Sumerian uh, term may, which means anointing one. It can also be, Sumerian does have a verb of being, and it can be used as a, a free form of the past tense of the verb of being, which is was. So you just write down all those puns. You get the star went before them until having come, it stood over the house where the child was. And they're all embedded in alternate uh, spellings and and uh, uh, epithets, really, for uh, the, the child star Regulus. So um, and I want to just conclude with, I think the best explanation for this child being the Christ, it's definitely the Christ. Sheru means king and child, but it's literally equated with the Sumerian logogram may, which means anointed one, or Christ. And I just wanted to let you know that uh, in Salt Lake City, you know, we, we're on daylight savings time. If you go out at about 525 in the morning on Christmas morning and you put Polaris at your back, face totally south, start looking up, halfway up in the sky, you'll see Regulus. The brightest star you'll see is Regulus. And Regulus is, he's the, it's the Christ child king star. And so uh, about 525 in the morning, if you have children and they're little kids, you're going to be up at 525 anyways. You might as well go out as a family and go find Regulus, you know. So anyway, so that's the, that's my, uh, I did want to, uh, let me just conclude with one last thing. So Jesus' um, birthday is December 25th. They didn't do that for any reason, any old reason. There's a specific reason. So 
the, the sun moves northward and southward. As it moves towards, right now it's getting closer and closer to the winter solstice. So the sun stands still at the solstice on December 21st, 22nd, 23rd, 24th. And then it starts moving northward again. You get the rebirth of the sun, the rebirth of the, the year, Sol Invictus, the unconquerable sun. And that's why they made Jesus's birthday December 25th. So I just wanted to point that out. Um, it's not an accident that Jesus is born on September uh, 25th. And that's just another uh, layer of, uh, you, you know, mystery and paganism embedded in Jesus's nativity. So yeah, oh, by the way, the uh, Southern Cross is involved in that three days dead. Yeah, and that that could very well be as well. And by the way, this is a, a Native American petroglyph that shows the turning of the sun. So you have uh, dual suns there, and you see that little crescent moon. This is in uh, central Utah. At the it's the Fremont culture, uh, who I, I do a lot of archaeoastronomy with. So when you turn around from that site, you can literally watch the winter solstice sunrise to the winter solstice sunset. And the theory is that that. Ancestral Puebloan people, ancestral Native American people, were very concerned about turning that sun at the winter solstice. Because if not, you would all life would die; it would freeze to death. So they did a lot of rituals and a lot of dances and a lot of ceremonies to make sure that that sun turned. And we believe, uh, you know, my my co-researchers and I believe that that is showing the turning of the sun. At the uh, so at the uh, winter solstice sunrise sunset, so books the Sesame Code of Scripture. Hope that wasn't too pedantic. I try to make this <laughs> not for me personally. Yeah. I, and my audience is, uh, I think, very uh, into this material. Though I, I don't think they'd be following my channel. But that was really awesome, John. There's a. I wonder if you have time for a couple more questions. Yeah. If not, we'll just. Well, I want to have you back either way because yeah. I would love to talk about other aspects from the research in this book. And I'd also really like to talk about your research into the, uh, the native American stuff, like in just yeah. the, the name given to that culture. You just referenced the Fremont. That's the yeah. Mount of Frey. Yeah. Fremont, yeah. <laughs> you know, Frey is the sun. So yeah. of course they would be very, very uh, concerned with that uh, rebirth moment of the, the turning so what I want to, I guess what I want to ask first is, can you, could you conceive of in, in your research of a possibility uh, that the timelines that we accept in academia are inaccurate, that maybe there could be, that it's possible that we're dealing with a shorter timeline and, you know, like that some of these just like you see with uh, other dead languages like Latin or unspoken mm -hmm. languages like Hebrew, that possibly some of these languages were created specifically to encipher the uh, the knowledge of the priest class. You know, there's like so many connections in the linguistics that you've just showed a small sample of here to like the Celtic and the Phoenician, which are, you know, using the same exact alphabets that it boggles the mind and to try to even like put things into historical context, it almost seems like a, a fool's errand and we're <laughs> like to yeah. try to, to try to come up with timelines. So anyway, I'm wondering what you think, if you could, if you think that there could be some inaccuracies in the chronology. Uh, I, I think that there's an, I don't know about inaccuracies in the chronology. There, there, 
You, you mean, if you're talking about things like the dating of the constellations and stuff like that, um, I, I do think they go back into far into pre-literate Mesopotamia, maybe even further, further back than that. Um, uh, I do think there, the origin of writing and the idea of uh, transforming, seeing the night sky as a text, as a pictographic text that is encoded with wordplay, and those wordplay are the revelations that explain the story. Um, I think that is as old as writing itself in Samaria. I think it goes back to 3000 BC, 5000 years old. And, um, and then remember, Sumerian language dies in about 1800 BC. It's retained by the Babylonians and the Assyrians who retained it as a sacred script to, uh, to, uh, to, for the language of science and literature. And the science, of course, the most important science was astronomy, astrology. Uh, and I, my belief is that all of the myths are celestial myths. Every single one is celestial. And they're often invo- in, encoded with very spiritual messages as well. Like Jesus walking on water, He's walking on the river of death. The river of death is, is, is a passage. It's a rite of passage we're all going to have to go to. You believe in the soul. You're going to have to make it through that. So you better, you, you better have a pure heart and a light heart and a heart that is not burdened by sin because you got to make it through that. If you're going to, if your soul is going to, uh, uh, ascend into heaven, uh, as a, as a deity, as a, uh, you know, um, be, to be granted eternal life. <laughs> yeah. And there's similar concepts that, I, you know, in my small amount of knowledge about native American cultures of needing to cross over the, like that the Cygnus constellation was somehow important to like overcoming a type of uh, celestial adversary mm-hmm. to reach the center again. Yeah. So, so the ski de Pawnee, uh, one of one of my uh, mentors when I was in grad school was a guy named Bondel Chamberlain, and he um, he did uh, an ex- extraordinary work on the Skeedy Pawnee uh, of uh, Nebraska, showing that they had this incredible elaborate as- astronomy uh, in which these um, uh, the 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 stories are st- they're, they're a connection to what's going to happen to you in the spirit life after you die. This life, this physical world life we live in is a very short one it's it's a it's a lot like egyptian spirituality it's it's really concerned with the afterlife so, so is babylonian syrian and sumerian but um the difference with at least southwestern native american is you're dealing with um pre-literate cultures or i i, I don't like the term illiterate non-literate cultures because they have an in- extensive oral tradition and oral stories and all this information is encoded in those oral stories. So it's tough to unpack those because not many people know the, uh, you, you know, the, so few people now know Native American languages, even in the Native American tribes themselves, which is quite sad. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I, that's a whole nother episode, but, um, but I, as far as time goes, I believe that the Our Father prayer, where it says, on earth as it is in heaven, I think that is a human old tradition of trying to look at the stars, seeing them as embodiments of deities, 
and seeing that they have a remarkable effect on the seasons and the things that give us life here on earth. And um, that's the layer of Judaism, Christianity, Islam that a lot of, uh, I think a lot of um, modern churchgoers have stopped going to church and they're like, yeah, but I couldn't believe it. When you start to realize that there's layers, there's, there's calendric layers under it, and it's connected to seasonal occurrences, then the, your the Christianity, Judaism, Islam starts to take on this whole new life, and um, and that, and it's a it's a pagan spirituality, and I find that um, utterly remarkable and. I find it really passionate. I get a kick out of it. So, so I yeah, like, I like that's what I'm about too. Is if we can reconnect these traditions, mythologies, mm-hmm. and systems to what actually happens in nature mm-hmm. and how they teach us about nature, then we will have regained the most value that these things ever had to offer us. You know, yeah. and get our heads out yeah. of the sort of airy fairy mysticism you know, non, yeah. non-scientific thinking. And so I, you know, when I brought up the chronology question, I, I guess, you know, to add context to that, <laughs> there've been many, many writers in the past that have accused Rome of the, you know, their chief industry being forgery and when, <laughs> when put to the test of like, can you produce any documents that prove the antiquity of your scriptures by the Mohammedans? The, I believe the Vatican couldn't produce anything relating to the Gospels that was older than the sixth century. Wow. So, wow. They, and that's like on the record stuff. So, the point being that, like, you know, we see a lot of a lot of priestly forgery from all traditions, not just pointing the finger at Catholicism. Yeah. And so, it makes me wonder, you know, like with cuneiform, for example. Or even like the the hieroglyphics in a lot of the Egyptian temples, there are aspects of that that could be more modern than what we're told or what is believed. Mm. I say what we're told. I don't even yeah. need it to be conspiratorial. It could be just yeah. a mass web of uh, misconceptions because cuneiform it is a pretty simplistic thing. Like you know, maybe we could t- if you have time to maybe touch on the Behistun inscription which is sort of like the rosetta stone of cuneiform because like the the rosetta stone has a correlate there's a lot of problems with that yeah i'm i know the one you're talking about it's where they crack the they in essence crack the code uh of cuneiform and i i i'm I'm not up on that i mean i i got i got it right on the test in grad school you know 20 some years ago um so uh yeah yeah they they cracked they saw an inscription it was on stone and the, the the scholars figured out. I'd have to look it up again about exactly how they did it, um, but it, but it is the in essence the cuneiform Rosetta Stone. Um, uh, yeah, there it is. Yeah, and so I, I the story is just vaguely familiar. Now I'm, I'm embarrassed that I can't I can't just spit it out and give you an, a real good explanation. No, that's okay. You know, these could be but, this. Could, we're pretty late in the show. This could be yeah. ideas to you know fuel future conversations. We'll be in touch. Yeah, no, that'd be wonderful. But yeah, think I just really enjoyed talking about the Star of Bethlehem. I hope everyone has a wonderful solstice in whatever way you celebrate that. But just remember uh, to you, you know, especially to nature worshiping people like the Native Americans out here, 
in the American Southwest, you know, this is a sacred time and they're doing rituals to keep that sun and our earth in balance. And um, maybe we should all try to do that. <laughs> maybe we should all take part in that. It might be a good way to go. That's a great yeah. message. So yes. yeah, I'd love to have you back on if there, that sounded like closing thoughts, but you know, yeah. if there's anything else you want to add and tell people where to find your book or any other works that you might want to promote. Yeah. It's just on Amazon. It's John McHugh. My name's on the screen there. Uh, the Celestial Code of Scripture, the Astral Cipher underlying the miracle stories of the Bible and the Quran. Uh, it's Monkfish is the publishing house. And um, I just want to thank you so much, Chance, for being on Interverse. It, it was just really a, a, a real fun time. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate the time from you and the energy and preparation that you brought to the table. As a host, I do not always get such a, you know, presentation locked and loaded. So that's a, a real yeah. treat, I think, for everybody. And yeah, you you brought really good energy. I really loved it. We will have to do it again. I think that, you know, with our perspectives combined, we might find some very interesting further connections down the road. And I will keep pressing on reading the rest of the chapters of this book. I think I need to read eight through 11 and yeah. then whatever, whatever, whatever's after 12. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you may see things Revelation. like where I, I will yeah. probably be citing things I learned from this book and other shows uh, for a awesome. long time. So thank you for thank that. You. And we'll do it again, man. Thank you so much, Chance. You guys take care. See you in Thanks everybody for tuning in. Catch y'all later. All right. Bye-bye.